You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to Trailblazers on SENZ. I'm Ricky Swanell, and my guest today is one of our Olympic champions, one of our most recent Olympic champions, gold medalist in Tokyo, but a veteran rower, a veteran of the New Zealand team. Emma Twig, welcome to Trailblazers. Thank you. Lovely to be speaking to you today. Um, how's life changed now that you have Emma Twig, Olympic gold medalist, next to your name? Uh, life, to be honest, hasn't changed a hell of a lot. Uh, life involved a bit of a lockdown, which was an interesting way to come back from an Olympic Games. Um, but in general, I just, I guess there's a real sense of satisfaction and pride um, in my, and a bit of a spring in my step in the last couple of months. Yeah, I was going to, I'd imagine, um, you know, your story of trying to get to this gold medal is well known, but um, now that you actually have it, is it kept anywhere special? Has it been out and about or has it gone straight to the sock drawer? Uh, no, they came in these awesome little cases that kind of double as um, a little display case. So it's been sitting on the mantle a bit. And then whenever I take it to schools, I put it into a sock. So um, Bondi gave me that track and it's been working well so far. Although people look at it and think, what are you doing with a sock, carrying a sock around? <laughs> it has it, going into the schools, and obviously it's been a little bit limited with, you know, the, the lockdown and all of that, but seeing kids and, and letting them touch it and, and you had that wonderful reception at Christchurch Airport, is, what is that like? Um, and what are, what are those kids like? What are their eyes like when they see it? Yeah, it's pretty special, really. And it's something that I guess the last couple of times I've been to a game, being so close to having something really tangible to take to kids. And although, you know, you say it's not about the, the medals and things like that, that's what kids identify with. So, um, yeah, they're, they're pretty excited and to get to feel the weight of it as well. It's a pretty hefty medal. And you just see their eyes light up and, and it's pretty cool to just realise that, you know, that could be their moment of realising that maybe they want to pursue something like that. Let's go back to, to Tokyo, not all that long ago, although a lot has happened since, and I'm sure you, you're not sick of talking about it yet. I don't I don't think you'll ever, you ever will be. But what stands out to you from that whole week, from that whole regatta? Um, I guess it was a really different games in terms of um, we went there knowing that it wasn't going to be the same experience as before. So um, it was probably more of a business trip really this time around for us. You know, we went in there, we knew we were going to be restric restricted in our movements. And so the focus, it's always on performance and competition, but even more so this time. Um, I felt like we had things really drilled in and we were just going going about our processes. Um, and so, yeah, the week, you know, for me, it couldn't have gone any better. And as the week went on, I just feel like I just um, gained a whole lot of confidence in each round. Um, and also because we hadn't had any of these build-up races and regattas, it was a little bit of an unknown. So, yeah, it was a pretty special experience. Yeah, and it's a really interesting way to look. I hadn't thought about it as that, as the a business trip kind of way, but I guess that's the, the reality it was because it was just so different. 
Yeah, and and I think me being my fourth games again, um, it's less about you know the, your first time in the village and and you know going to the food hall and everything that that goes with being in a village or a games experience. Um, and we knew we were going to have nothing afterwards in terms of going in to support um, team members and other sports and enjoying the, the festivities afterwards. So um, we were there to to compete, but also to support our fellow teammates within the village. And that's one thing this time that was really special. Um, the team culture, I felt, was heightened because we were all in there. We had to be there. And, um, you know, we got behind everyone and welcomed everyone back every time they, they came back into the village. That whole week, and, and I, I didn't get out to the rowing, so I was looking from a distance, but it just seemed that there was a not a, a sort of serenity, but a, a kind of calm about about you and, and how you were going about your business. Would that be kind of an accurate Way to, way to describe it? Yeah, definitely. I felt um, calm and confident would be the words that I, mm. I used for that regatta. And I had a lot of fun, um, I guess, with the mental side of things. We'd done a lot of work leading into that because that was an area that I really felt I needed to improve upon. And, um, you know, I've had some pretty amazing people around me that have helped me with that. And some of the little tools and te- techniques I actually had a bit of fun with in, um, in that week uh, of the games. And, like I said, as each each race happened and I started to just dominate everything that I did, I just um, guess it was like the old Emma of, of young when you have this kind of naive confidence about you um, and, you know, not really trying to dwell on any of my previous results or how those games ended up and just enjoy it for what it was and for the moment. And, yeah, it went really well. Obviously, yeah, it went, went okay. Um, that, that mental side, and we hear a lot of athletes talking about their mental skills and the work they do. What does that actually look like? Yeah, it's a funny one to kind of pinpoint and talk about because um, I think I've learned, especially in this Olympic cycle, um, through uh, my, my conversations with John Quinn, who I've used as my mental skills coach, but also people like Angus Ross and, and my coach Mike and just my team. A lot of it's been about... Um, kind of the language that we use and I think actually a lot of the work is done behind the scenes with some of those guys. Um, mm. I know that Shah's told me recently how many conversations, phone calls she had with those people unbeknownst to me. Um, but, you know, there's this kind of this messaging that they were getting through um, that was building me up in confidence and belief that, you know, I guess over years and years of having that belief chipped away because of those results from other games, um, that was the, the real key part to me is just getting back to to that confident Emma who knows that she could be an Olympic champion, but perhaps has doubted that in one way or the other because of um, because of my previous results. So was Shah, who for those who don't know, Shah, Charlotte is Emma's wife. Um, was she dropping little things and unbeknownst to you for sort of months prior and whatnot? Oh, I think they, they kind of more came. Um, Quinny's, I guess, big on kind of the holistic picture and, making sure that um, there's balance in life. So obviously your partner's a huge part of that. Um, but, yeah, there was, you know, I had a bit of a meltdown six weeks out from the games and I think Shah was at a loss as to what to be telling me and talk how, how to kind of get me through that. And, yeah, she was on the phone to Mike and Quinny and they were, um, I guess, relaying the messaging that she should be giving me. And, you know, with hindsight, uh, there's those turning points um, a lot of the time in your campaign and I think those people around me were really crucial to keeping me where I needed to be. Speaking of that side, and obviously, as I say, fourth in fourth in London, fourth in Rio, and and how hard that was this time around because of a different life. You you settled personally. Um, were you a different version of yourself on that start line in Tokyo? Not necessarily a better version, just a different version. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that just experience is a wonderful thing. It can be a double-edged sword, as, as I've kind of realised. Um, you know, like you, you you chip away at that confidence, but also at the same time, if you're learning from all of those mistakes and learning from, from what you did wrong in previous campaigns, and that was one thing that my return to, to rowing this time around, I just really highlighted what um, what I needed to work on and was really honest and with myself about what I needed to work on. I think that can be quite hard sometimes. Um so I think it's it's an evolution of of Emma Twig, I guess, of um, Beijing, and hopefully I've taken the um, the losses and and learned from them and evolved in, into probably a more balanced individual. Um, but I've got to say that a lot of my success, looking at it now, is is like I say, it's just down to those key people that have really helped me achieve um, what I have right now. Is is that those people um, that you had around you this time um, and the mental side, is that the difference from the two-fourths? It's not that you're necessarily a better rower or a better technical rower or anything like that, that the field is any different. It's those off-the-water things that we don't see that, that have made the difference this time? Um, I think it's a whole lot of things, to be honest. When I returned, I, I wanted to create this team around me who had, had their expertise in all of those little areas and, you know, really focus on the detail and, I'm, I'm better mentally, but also physically I'm a different person. You know, Gus has changed me in my strength and conditioning. Um, you know, I've got some different eyes in the physiology side. Technically, Mike has changed what I'm doing. So, you know, these little things, that they don't sound like a lot, but actually they can make quite a difference. Um, so I think it's the complete package. And in the past, I think I've had the talent and, and I'm kind of naturally gifted, I guess, from a physiological point of view, but there's many, many pieces of the puzzle that need to be put together to, to have that, you know, that performance on the day. Um, and so, yeah, I feel really privileged that I've been able to call upon these people and create this team. Um, and we have been able to achieve what I always knew that I could do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how did you, how did you, I guess, share it with them afterwards in the immediate aftermath? Cause obviously well, did Mike make it in the end? Mike went, um, but the others weren't there. Yeah, yeah. So we we had a few there. So I had Caroline and Mike and um, Melissa, um, Crystal, who's nutrition. So we had probably the only two guys that weren't there were Angus and Quinny, really. Um, so that was pretty cool being able to share it with them. But I also, you know, got on the phone straight away after my race to Gus and um, and Quinny, both of them. And yeah, there was a few tears shed. Um, but I think it's yeah, it was just so special because these guys, you know, they believed that I could achieve this and they were the ones almost pushing me to to give it another go um you know on my return from Switzerland it was all just an idea at at that point but their excitement and belief in in what I could do was what kind of locked me in um and like you say Mike he had this horrific car accident a year earlier and it was just I guess it was part of the part of the puzzle that we had an extra year to get him there when you think back to it now and, and the day of that race and, and how it all turned out, is there one moment from that day, was it the crossing of the line or the getting the medal around your neck or hearing the anthem? What Was there was there one thing now that kind of still sticks out from the, from that time, getting to the pontoon, whatever it may have been? Um, I think it's got to have been when I saw the, the medals being walked towards me. Um, I kind of lost it a bit there emotionally um, and – I guess you know, in our sport, we hear the national anthem play when we win. We don't we don't hear it before a race or, or you know a game. So I've heard the national anthem play four times in my career, and that was the fourth time. Uh, and four seems to be quite a significant <laughs> thing with my career. And I remember being a junior and standing on the podium, and and even thinking then, like, how amazing would it be to to be able to do this in the Olympics? So 
that was pretty special. And, you know, the mask, although um, restrictive, probably covered up a little bit of that emotion. Yeah. It was a hell of a day for New Zealand rowing, though, too. It was amazing. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. To be to be part of that, and then I think because of the way it worked over there, you finished competing, and I think you guys were out, you know, a couple a few days later. Um, but you left the village and went to the hotel. The All Black Sevens, I think, were they there for? And that all of that must have been just mad. Yeah, it was pretty cool. We we had a little team function where the Sevens boys had moved out of the the village too, and man, they just they welcomed us with the most amazing waita, and oh, we all kind of looked at each other like you know how do we return something here because you know culturally I guess that's one thing that our team is lacking a little bit of but it was pretty um it was pretty amazing and again something that that will, I'll remember that along with them singing on the plane on the way home but um it's pretty special <laughs> things and 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 the special thing about it also was that pretty much everyone in our team almost were um experiencing success at an Olympics which is um which is blooming amazing yeah, lucky those guys are actually really good singers. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably why we're not good at that. <laughs> um, our guest, my guest uh, on Trailblazers today is Olympic gold medal winning rower Emma Twig. Stay with us on SENZ. Back with Emma shortly. You're listening to Trailblazers on SENZ. I'm Ricky Swanell, and my guest is uh, Olympic gold medal winning rower Emma Twig. Uh, we've been talking about Tokyo and how that all played out, but let's go right back to the start. Um, was it always rowing? Was rowing always your sport? Uh, when I was young, I played all sorts of different sports, and I loved sport in general. Um, I played cricket and hockey for a period of time, and then hockey became my thing, and, and I came, became pretty serious at that until – I kind of got to know rowing and then there was this big decision that I had to make when I was kind of fourth form at school, I want to say, um, as to whether I pursue the New Zealand junior rowing team or try and give them, you know, a high level of hockey a go. And it was pretty clear that I think my natural talents were in rowing, although I probably would have loved to have been a black stick. <laughs> Where'd you, how, what positions did you play in hockey? I was a centre half most of the time, but I'm often drafted into the backs as well, which I didn't love. <laughs> Uh, how did you get to, to rowing? Uh, so my brother was coached by my dad. My dad was a coxswain at school at King's College, and then he um, coached um, a few novices at the Hawke's Bay Rowing Club, so they kind of drafted me. And I was actually probably more interested in the social side than actually the rowing, but um, rowing is a sport that takes a while to master, and the first couple of months weren't that enjoyable because as a novice it's a really technical sport. Um, but then you kind of find your groove and, and realise that going away on the weekends with your mates is pretty fun, so I was hooked. But in that sense, though, too, it is a really cool sport, having been to a couple of Marty Cups and seen how that plays out. Like, you have got absolute novices against and, and all in these different age categories, so there's an opportunity for complete newcomers to go away and play and compete in a sport at a, at a good level at a national tournament. It doesn't happen in many sports, right? Yeah, that's the beauty of our sport, really, and I remember... I mean, even just being at a national chance together, we're, we're walking around the bank and you're mixing shoulders, rubbing shoulders with um, novices. And I remember that very clearly watching the elite team, you know, walking around the banks of Carapero and, um, you know, the Eversford twins, I rode in a boat with them from Hawke's Bay. And so when they came down, you'd hop out in a boat with them and my mind was blown. And yeah, from that moment, it was very much like, I, I want to be doing what they're doing. So um, you have these, real, again, really tangible role models. 
How, how much does it take to commit to a sport like rowing, though? At fourteen, fifteen, going, oh, okay, I, I, and it'd probably be different for you in that your dad was is heavily involved. Um, but to go right, I'm, I'm going to have a crack for these teams, knowing what could be ahead. Yeah, I guess again, there's this real naivety about you. You don't really know what it involves and what the workload eventually is going to be. Um, and it, in my early days, we're training, you know, three times a week. It wasn't anything too serious. It wasn't like being at one of the really intense, um, I guess some schools target Marty Cup and they go quite hard, but as a club rower in Hawke's Bay, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and then, again, my physique and, and this kind of determination, um, I had this kind of natural talent for it um, and a very clear pathway. And, and like I said, people that I could see um, were achieving and you got your junior world champs and your under-23 world champs and these teams were there for, for you to aim towards. So... Yes, it was um, it was a pretty cool time looking back. Yeah, and, and maybe being in Hawke's Bay rather than at one of those big, what what we would now call a rowing school, did that play a part or, or help that enjoyment level of wanting to stick with the sport and almost being you know a kid from the provinces a little bit to show up the big schools? Yeah, definitely. And it probably was the reason I got into the single skull because we didn't, we would row for a club um, for most of the season and break, break down to our school. So at my school, there's only two rowers. And my best friend Karina and I rode in a double, but she was a year older than me in the age bracket. So I ended up being in the single. And you, you probably just wouldn't be doing that at a big rowing school um, because you're in their, their big um, kind of blue ribbon boats. So, yeah, I think everything, it's, it's all kind of fallen into place from that perspective. But also just having, um, you know, people that are three, four years older than you that you get to socialise with and hang around with and go on, go on regattas <laughs> with is quite unique in, in our sport. Was there any point as you sort of game went through to the the national level and the junior teams? Was it always sticking with the single? Were you put in any of the crew boats or anything like that? Yeah, so at junior level I raced for two years in an eight. So internationally, I've only ever competed in an eight or a single, which is quite a fun fact. Um, and my first senior world champs was in an eight in two thousand and six. So I I progressed into the senior or the elite team fairly um, quickly. I think I was a year out of school. I did one um, year as the junior world um, single scholar, straight into an eight, and then pretty quickly realised that I could see there was a, a spot available in the single skull um, for Beijing. Sonia Waddell was the previous, uh, the incumbent scholar, mm. and she'd retired. Um, and we had a chance to, to go away in an eight and try and qualify that. But the, the depth of our women's programme wasn't quite where it was at, uh, at now. Well, it's certainly not where it's at now, but... Um, I kind of thought, well, is the A going to qualify or do I have a better shot at qualifying this single? Um, and it was a little controversial at the time, me kind of as a 19-year-old putting my hand up and saying, actually, I want to be in the single skull. Um, but I kind of, again, naively persisted and dug my toes in and, and managed to get the boat qualified. Do you have to be a single skull is just a little bit different? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue that. Mahe would say the same thing. We're definitely a special breed. Not many people like being in the single. It's lonely, and it, it's like, I mean, if you're tired, you're tired, and you're not gonna go any faster. So, um, but it's at the same time, um, that's the beauty of it is whatever you change, it's gonna change how the boat goes. Well, that's the thing, right? Like a bit like say a tennis, it's all on you. Yeah. Is that something that you are, like you've always wanted to be able to absorb? It? And I guess. <laughs> to the flip side it's all on you but then you also don't have to rely on someone else who might not be at the same level yeah I mean there's elements of that and I think the single skull this this kind of 
it's along with the eights, it's the blue ribbon event. So um, mm-hmm. there's opportunities to go and travel and do different regattas in the single, and that's what I've really loved about it. Um, but at the same time, like there's been many, many times where I've questioned my decision to be in the single, and whether being in another boat would have, um, you know, maybe allowed allowed me a bit more success earlier on. Um, and if you ask Bondi, he, you know, I often say to him, you know, why don't you in the, in the single? And he's just like, nah, too hard, not my thing. Um, but he would be amazing at it. But it's just, um, yeah, it takes a certain person, I think. Yeah, yeah. Years and years ago, you, I think you were given the Helberg, the Emerging Talent Award. Um, I, gosh, I can't even remember. It was a, a, a wee while back. A time ago, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know why your year, that just sticks in my brain amongst any of the others. But did that put expectation on quite young? Um. I don't think expectation, but, and again, like at the time I kind of felt like that was, that was where I was at, you know, like I was, I, I believed I was an emerging talent and that the next, I think it was before London, um, but that was kind of the next step in my, my story. And, and that's, I guess, what's been so heartbreaking about my story is that I really felt that I've had the potential to perform, but it's just been always a little bit out of my, out of my reach in those Olympic years. Um, so yeah, it was that was definitely a real honour, and I remember Sam Webster, I think, was in that same um, cohort as me. So yeah, yeah, it's it's funny watching the different play. I don't even, as I say, I don't know why you're stuck <laughs> stuck in my brain, but it it, it did. Um, you, you talk, you mentioned a few times those your story and the heartbreak. So choosing to come back and do it again, we talked about the commitment as a young athlete to commit to a sport like right the commitment to come back and try and put yourself through this again what was the the factor what clicked what made you want to do that um I think as we spoke about earlier that um you know that kind of growth as an individual uh and a realization that sport and being able to be the best in the world at something is uh, only a really limited time in your life that you can work towards something like that and I'd felt deep down that I hadn't reached my potential um, and that I had a bit more to give, but also that I loved what I did. I loved the day-to-day training. When I when I took some time away or retired, I was still getting up to do, um, you know, half, half marathon or marathon or even an Ironman that year. So I loved the physical aspect of it and having that goal. And obviously my body was still capable, um, but it probably was when I was in Pyeongchang with, Nat Tong and um, the Winter Olympic crew and we were sitting watching the long track speed skating team and they got fourth in, in that as well and obviously I, I could identify um, but it also just made me realise that you know they're, they were inspiring me and they were inspiring people back in New Zealand and uh, regardless of their result it was just such a special thing to be an athlete at a games um, and so why not be doing that for as long as I could be um, and so that was kind of the mindset of why as to why I was there that Olympic cycle and it was what I was reminded of a lot by my team um, when I did come back whenever the focus became I'm not going fast enough or I'm not going to win a gold medal you know when all those kind of negative thoughts came um, through it was always reminding me of why I was doing it. Oh my gosh you just reminded me of that race and I like I in the speed skating team and my heart I don't think I've ever watched a sport event where my heart was beating out of its chest as much as when their semi-final against um, the Koreans where they had them. Yeah. That, that was when I, what we were when we were watching, and I was just, they were point something of a second from yeah. the, the gold medal match. And again, that's the difference in the, in this instance was the difference between them winning a medal 
um, in the, the bronze medal match. That, that just laid it all out in that semi-final. So, yeah, pretty epic. Cool sport too. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, hold that thought. We will get back to that uh, in a moment because you've had some adventures in between your uh, uh, Olympic campaigns. So stay with us on SENZ. We're talking to Emma Twig on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers on SENZ where my guest is Emma Twig. We were talking, um, Emma, about you were at the Winter Olympics in 2018. You'd gone, you were working for the IOC, but You've had all sorts of adventures in between London and Rio and Rio and Tokyo, so let's have a chat about some of them. Firstly, after London, you went, it uh, wasn't straight after London, but you went and, and you studied, you did this amazing, it's like a, a Masters of Sport. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got to do that and, and what that year was like. Yeah, it was a, a pretty amazing year in terms of personal development and something very different to what I've experience for a, a big chunk of my life being part of a high performance system in rowing um, and it was just it came about because I really felt like I needed a, to be freshened up after spending so much time in the single um, and I'd kind of approached the selectors to to try a different boat but um, they weren't that keen on that as a way of you know addressing that kind of need for change so I took it upon myself to go and do this this master's course and I guess London had taught me that Things don't necessarily go the way you want them to go in sport, so you needed to have something else to go to. Um, and this opportunity arose to apply for the FIFA Master, which is a program that's endorsed by FIFA, um, but it's it's people from all different uh, backgrounds, lawyers, marketing people, sports managers, um, 28 different nationalities and close to 28 different languages. Um, the three Kiwis in the class were the only ones that didn't speak another language, unfortunately. Um, standard yeah standard and we just we had the most amazing year we had three different universities one in England one in Milan and one in um, Neuchatel in Switzerland and different we studied different things in each of those places uh, and just got to go to some pretty amazing sporting venues Lords Manchester City Man United um, IOC UCI all sorts all sorts of amazing um, experiences and just got to to learn about international sports management basically um, and that kind of that network that I got from that course opened up the doors for me to eventually go and work in international sport um, on my retirement after Rio. Uh, you, you, were, you were training though as well, right? Because you hadn't, you were outside of the Rowing New Zealand program, and I don't believe it went down particularly well. Your decision to go and do that did was part of it. You wanted to show there was another way that you could be an Olympian, a rowing Olympian in New Zealand, and not necessarily have to be in the Cambridge bubble. I guess it was that that probably that message came as a consequence of my decision. Yeah. I guess when people ask me about that Rio Olympic cycle and, and did I have it, did I regret going and doing that course? My answer is always no, I didn't regret it because it was it was just a phenomenal time in my life. What I do regret is rowing stance on not supporting me in that year because I think actually the implications of not allowing me to go and qualify at that um, 2015 regatta was far-reaching in our team. It wasn't just my result that was impacted that time. It was a woman's quad that didn't qualify. Um, so it was. I, I feel it was pretty short-sighted. Um, I'm a single scholar and, and I was feeding my, my data back to rowing New Zealand every day. I was waking up at five o'clock in the morning, training before class, having a nine to five schedule and then training after class and getting as much done as I was back in New Zealand and still doing personal bests on the ERG. And, you know, they, they could see that I was still a pretty good nick. Uh, and I needed a top nine placing, having been world champion in 2014. So 
to me, it was a no-brainer, and I was hoping that they were always, you know, going to reconsider when the time came. Um, the course finished two months before the World Champs were, and I was already going to be in Europe. There was just a lot that, you know, yeah. it could have gone a very different way, um, but unfortunately it didn't, uh, and I, I kind of then uh, impacted my um, 2016 campaign a little bit more than I thought it would, um, having to do a qualification again three months out from those Rio games. So was it pretty immediate that after Rio that you went to Europe and you, you ended up working at the IOC? Yeah, I pretty much started applying for jobs straight away and, and they have these internship positions that come up quite regularly. Um, so I think I was over in Switzerland. I went and I ran the New York Marathon that year. Um, oh, you did. Yeah, like trying to make use of the fitness from rowing and do something different. So that was, I think, October. And from there, I went over to Switzerland and started working um, which was, again, another year of real personal growth and development. What sort of stuff did you do? I was working in the planning and coordination team. So I did a lot on the master schedule and making basically the, the team at the IOC that I was working in works very closely with uh, the organising committees and they just kind of try and replicate um, the, all of the tasks required to make a, an Olympics happen. So it's kind of events but the IOC don't actually run the event, the organising committee do. So it's all transferring their knowledge to each new Olympic committee. So you went and worked for the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. Had the seed kind of about coming home and getting back into Rome been planted before then or was it in Korea that you were like, oh, God, I think I need to go home and do this again? Pretty much in Korea. I want to say when I watched that race because – at that, even before, as, as I was going to Korea, I was planning with Bex and, and SVB to do the, the bike track trip home. So my, my thoughts were definitely elsewhere at that time. Um, I didn't. I knew that my contract was coming to an end uh, and that I needed to start applying for other roles within the IOC if I wanted to stay in Switzerland. And there was part of me that was not quite ready to commit to that because obviously I had this, this underlying thought that I might go back to rowing. So... I was even tossing up ideas with my boss at the time of whether I could work and train for the IOC, so do my training in Switzerland. But um, at the more I thought about it and, and realised where we were in the Olympic cycle, I needed to be back in New Zealand and, and you know, doing what was right. And that's actually what kind of cut the bike trip a little bit short too. Yeah. So when you talk the bike trip, um, for those who don't know about the bike trip, you need to give us an overview about this because it's not any old bike trip. Yeah, it's not. I always feel like a little bit of a fraud when I talk about this bike trip. But um, basically it came about Rebecca Waddell, who's a, a Kiwi sporting legend as well. Um, she's the 2008 heptathlon representative at the Olympics. And she works over in Switzerland at the IOC, and she had this idea that she wanted to bike back to New Zealand. She'd kind of had enough of what she was doing over there. And we had another Kiwi there, Sarah Van Balafon, who was a dead keen uh, adventure girl. So she she committed to it as well, and we um, we all signed up to do the what we called the long way home. Um, and I was all about it until I realised actually you know, cycling um, for seven hours a day um, with a whole lot of bags on your panniers on your bike wasn't actually going to prepare me very well for an Olympics so I ended up doing 3,000 k so I biked from Switzerland to Istanbul and um, left the girls there and they continued and um, SVB went to China to the border there and then um, Bex ended up riding all the way back down to Lake Hawea which was absolutely amazing. 
that um, journey, and and I think I, I hope there was a Instagram. There's all I think there's still a website for it. If you ever get a chance, anyone who's listening, that have a look at the long way home, and, and particularly what Bex did, and she, I mean, slept in underground, like under um, tunnels in yeah. in winter and in like some extreme conditions. It's mad, but amazing. Yeah, she um, oh, she was the absolute hero of that, and I like to joke that I was on the holiday um, part of the trip because it was pretty cushy up until I left them in a stable, and then things started to get pretty rough pretty quickly, and they ended up sleeping in, I think, underway drains under the motorway. Yes. You know, there's rats at all stuff. Oh, it just, to me, it didn't, it didn't sound great. I was quite soaked that I tapped out when I did. Yeah, good good thinking. And one other thing from around that time and around when was, was it true that um Callan Dobbin, the speed skating coach, was sort of thinking that you would be quite a good speed skater if you decided to take up that sport? Oh, to be honest, it was probably me that thought I'd be quite a good speed <laughs> skater and I was harassing him for some help. I had this brainwave that if Tokyo had finished last when it should have, that two years would be enough time to get on some skates and try and um, get a, a female entry into it but yeah I feel like I bought myself some rollerblades I've still got them in the in the garage and um, I actually met up with Shane um, on the Gold Coast for the Com Games and he gave me a few exercises to do so yeah I had this dream of you know finishing my career in Beijing after starting it in Beijing but unfortunately I figured out fairly quickly that there's a certain amount of skill and ice involved in being a long track speed skater. Yeah, and those um, Winter Olympics are not all that far away there, but 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 a good good idea I'm nonetheless. Well and truly crushed when um, when Tokyo was postponed. <laughs> Stay with us on SENZ. We're talking to Olympic champion Emma Twig. My guest on Trailblazers on SENZ is Emma Twig, um, who has had a, a storied career as, as a rower and now and as Olympic champion, but. Emma, you've also got this sports admin background and high-performance sport, it gives a lot, but it can also take a lot and it's come under a lot of scrutiny in the last few years and and in the the last few weeks as well. You're sort of in the thick of things in Cambridge. What are we getting right and what are we perhaps not getting so right in in HP sport at the moment? Yeah, it's a really tough question, to be honest. Um, Obviously, I've experienced you know both sides of the the coin in terms of um, some good decision making and probably not so good good decision making. I think in general, I feel very privileged that we've got a great support network around us, and I think um, we're in a pretty privileged position from that perspective. Um, but I do think we've got a lot of work to do, and, and um, my frustrations, and I can only really speak of my experiences, uh, has been around this kind of. I guess, old boys network of um, decisions that is what we did in our day and that's how we should continue to do it. And we've definitely come a long way in the last, um, you know, few Olympic cycles, I guess. And our sport certainly has progressed like, like we've discussed earlier. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think we need we need some more diversity and, and diversity of thinking. Um, and we need to potentially take, as has been discussed in the media, the emphasis off necessarily you know a medal being the defining um, point of success and you know having now achieved that gold medal um, I look back on those um, other three campaigns and those results and I and I feel grateful that I've actually experienced the other side of it because I think it's really shaped me Um, I think I've learned a lot about uh, making sure everyone's you know feeling okay and 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 I guess being a little bit um, more reserved in terms of, um, you know, having having a gold medal kind of 
dangled around and, and, and I know that that inspires people and that's why we do it. But I think equally the inspiring part of the story is, is the journey and the stories that, that come from it, the experiences that you have. And I think that should be the focus of elite sport because ultimately if you're, if you're enjoying what you're doing, um, then you're going to get some great results. And, you know, that, that real mental health aspect that so many people battle with is generally because um, they're not living up to expectations that they've put on themselves or that others have put on themselves um, rather than just trying to create some like well-rounded individuals. Um, but the, the other side to that is that to be the best in the world at something, you do, you do require that element of um, absolute dedication and, um, yeah, this is quite a unique mm. thing. Mm. And looking... Again, from the outside in, but sort of being privileged enough to see a little bit of it in Tokyo. Obviously, there was great success from from the whole team. This wide range of medals won and and great achievements. But there seems to be a a different connection between all the athletes from different sports. Maybe it was the COVID delay as well that the emotion poured out of so many people in so many different ways, regardless of what happened. Yeah, for sure. I feel like there's a lot, a lot more tears and emotion at this games than I've yeah. ever ex- experienced before. Um, I think the centralised Cambridge training base actually has, personally, I've been at the velodrome, so it hasn't been completely rowing related. I've formed some great friendships and relationships, mm. and with that comes for a lot, comes with a lot of respect for what other people do in their sport. Um, you know, I'm in the gym with the likes of Dave Nieker and Tori Peters and. Um, J-Rat and just watching them you know do what they do and their gifts are so different to mine but really hard for and so when you go to a games you want to be supporting them and and you know cheering them on and welcome welcoming them back and that's I guess the cool thing about where our team has got to now Um, and I I actually think moving forward that's that's the more important thing it's like you know that that message that I come back to that Bex gave me um after the Olympics, that people remember you as a person more than they do, you know, your successes and your medals because there's a lot of uh, Olympic champions out there that people think are dickheads, for want of a better word. But yeah, there's also some brilliant people that haven't necessarily won medals. Um, And that's, I think, the the angle that we need to think about sport is just creating some some great people who can inspire kids and, and be great role models regardless of the result. And and do we need to look at ways of being better around female athletes in, in particular? Uh, I think not necessarily over the over over male athletes, but how we look after and and evaluate and um, treat female athletes from all sorts of perspectives. Yeah, I think again, like speaking from my experience with Ryan, we're in a team that's very balanced in terms of the yeah. the opportunities for, for men and women. I think that again, the the lacking. Um, area is potentially the administrative side um, opportunities for leadership for athletes finishing and, and rowing um, and just you know from again from experience the way that you're, you're potentially talked to by certain old boys because you're a female um, mm. those, those are the areas that I would highlight um, from my experiences and I think you know across the board we're making great strides our great women's sevens team, I really admire what they've done in terms of breaking down um, barriers and boundaries and chipping away at what has very much been seen as a, a man's world. Um, and again, lots of work to do, but it's, you know, it's like um, LGBTQ rights, you know, 20 years ago, we we're in a very different place to, to where we are now. So 
you've got to keep creating these role models and, and it's up to the media to keep um, pushing those images so that we can create um, some kind of um, equality across the board. We, we'll, we'll probably never be there because let's be honest, you know, that the men's sporting um, arena in terms of the financial, the dollar that they can bring in is completely different, but why not allow that to help um, young women or older women be involved in sport? Yeah, yeah at least give it a try, right? Um, to that end then, what where do you want to go in your post-rowing career? And I'm not saying that it, it might not be over yet, um, but, but where, what would you like to do putting all your experiences on and in and on and off the water to use? Um, yeah, it's something that I, I think is, again, it's evolving. I've done various things that have made me realise what I don't want to do. But at the same time, I think the more I'm in high-performing sport, I'd love to be as close to the sport as possible. And I'd love to be in, involved in, you know, a high-performance director-type role somewhere, I think, um, trying to trying to help people be the best that they can be and, and use some of the knowledge and experiences that I've had. I feel like, you know, you spend 20 years becoming a master of your craft which is a lot about performance planning um, and then to stop and think well I've got to retrain and go somewhere completely different um, so more trying to think where can I use these skills that I've learned and um, help others achieve you know their their goals or what they deem as their success and that's the key mm-hmm. part is you know what is success so Lots of options, at least. Um, have you been back in a boat since Rio, uh, since uh, Tokyo? I haven't been in a boat. I plan on going for a little paddle tomorrow morning. We'll be the, the first time back. Um, been on the erg, done some running, keeping fit, and just enjoying not having any kind of structure. And, yeah, back in the gym with all the crew at the Velodrome, which is pretty cool. That's, that's certainly my happy place. Yeah. H- have you made any decisions about what, where, what exactly is you're going to do in the short term? Uh, I'm kind of going year by year, and uh, I think I've, I've committed to another year with Rowan New Zealand. So that'll be that'll be cool. I, what I love about our sport is that the travel to Europe and the racing and these you know events that we get to do as singles, scholars that didn't happen last year or the year before. So yeah. I'd love to um, I'd love to get amongst that again uh, while my body's still able, and and also just make the most of um, being able to kind of get out and, and tell my story a bit more. Um, and I think being an athlete will allow that for another year. And then, yeah, we'll just weigh it all up. <laughs> just see. It's, the thing is, the cycle's so much shorter now, it feels yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, it's all about enjoyment for me and, and making sure that I can add value. So um, if I can continue to do that and I'll, you know, try and do some other things, different sports and, and try and, you know, train with those those other guys that I mentioned before and just keep it fresh. Yeah. What what else do you do? What else uh, once, you know, we get to hopefully some sort of semblance of normality again, what's what else outside of the lake and, and the gym and all of that? What are you up to? Um, well I'd love to get to some schools. Um we had a few on the in the calendar before lockdown hit, so no doubt that'll keep me busy um to through to the end of the year. I'd like to try and do some work, like I said, in, in um in the kind of high performance sport area, so maybe try and shadow someone for a little while. Um, but yeah, just you know, mow the lawns and do all those normal things that normal people do. Yeah, I was gonna say you got like you, Charlotte. Much did she have like a list of jobs? It's like right, it's it's my turn to carry on now. You've got all these other things to do at home. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty on top of my jobs to be honest. I've just been chilling and making sure she cooks me dinner most nights. <laughs> 
and before let you go, let's just talk a little bit briefly about her, about Charlotte. Did meeting her, marrying her in the last wee while, did that change? How did that change your perspective going into Tokyo and and I guess the person that you that you are now and and coming back with that medal? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like she's um, she's added to the armory, I guess, and I think her her and her family's perspective on kind of enjoying the process and um, enjoying being an athlete and all that that goes with that has really helped me appreciate that day to day stuff a lot more. Um, and again, it's you know they just think it's amazing that I'm in Olympic Games. That, that to them was just such a, a big deal. Um, and so I, that's I guess made me sit back and actually go, yeah, you know what, being a, a full time Olympian is a huge thing, regardless of the result. And why do you love doing it? And and you know the lifestyle that it, that it entails. So she's definitely given me appreciation for just enjoying the in the, the small things and um, being I guess slightly less driven because. Underneath it all, I'm always going to be competitive and going for it. But um, if you make that your uh, absolute absolute be all and end all, then you know you are going to end up in a pretty um, shitty place if things don't go go well. Single scholar, eh? But it takes an army. Oh, it takes more than an army. Yeah. I, again, I just can't thank enough the you know the, the key people that I guess have come into my life, especially in this campaign. Um, that just yeah, had so much belief, even at times when I didn't. And and I think any athlete will tell you that there's no way that you can do something as, as big as that by yourself. Well, Emma Twig, I can't thank you enough for this awesome chat, for your honesty and your openness and, and everything. It's been great fun. And congratulations on everything that you have achieved. Thanks for being with us on Trailblazers. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Sweet. Now this is the bit where I panic, where I stop the record and